0: The reason I think this is important is because sometimes as Christians, we think we just get samples and we aren't confident or aggressive. We don't think about praying in a, in a situation where someone might be ill or sick. We don't think about praying uh, confidently about it because we're really we think we're just getting samples and bite-sized pieces of healing when in reality, God has set this huge table up for us and he said, you can eat from this table. Non believers, on the other hand, experience what I would say kind of like samples. God has healed people that do not have faith in Jesus Christ. He can do whatever He wants. So He has the freedom to do that. But there's not as much confidence. It's not something that has been necessarily uh, purchased for them by Jesus' atoning work. And so I know that that's a lot to, to bite off right now, but I want to explain what I'm referring to. And just kind of go systematically through a couple passages. So first, just to get us thinking in these terms, I want to show you Psalm 103. Okay, this does not necessarily address the atoning work of Jesus, which I'll define in a moment. But it just tells us a little bit about God's nature. This is Psalm 103, verses 1 through 5. It's a great passage to lead into worship. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget none of his benefits, who pardons all your iniquities, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with loving kindness and compassion, who satisfies your years with good things so that your youth is renewed like the eagle. So verse two says, Bless the Lord and forget none of his benefits. Okay? Uh, The benefits of the Lord... Are well, some of them, this is not an exhaustive list, but some of the benefits of the Lord are he pardons all your iniquities. In some translations, it'll say he forgives all of your sins. Okay, so right there we know this is being directed at God's redeemed people. This is being directed at, you know, Israel in the Old Testament, Christians in the New Testament, those that have been forgiven by God, their sins have been forgiven. Then it says, who heals all your diseases. Uh, So we're gonna touch on healing today, but he redeems your life from the pit. He crowns you with loving kindness and compassion. He satisfies your years with good things so that your youth is renewed like the eagle. So before we spend a lot of time talking about what this means for us, I just wanna take a moment to consider what do we learn about God from this passage? I mean, like what's this passage tell us about the, the nature or the character, or maybe a lesser word might be the personality of God. This is what it means to be friends with God. Forgiveness, healing, redemption, these are all good things, right? I mean, tell me one of those benefits is not a good thing. That's how good God is, that's how kind God is, that's how powerful God is, that every benefit, every side product from being in relationship with God is a positive thing. These are all good things. These are the benefits of being united with Christ, and so... What I'm going to actually suggest today is that the same level of confidence, the same level of confidence that we have about Jesus' willingness to forgive all of our sins is the level of confidence we should have in His willingness to heal our diseases. OK? Now, you and I are free from sin, and when we die and are in heaven, sin will have zero power over us. I don't, there'll be no sin in heaven. We won't choose it. It won't be in our spiritual DNA. It won't be in our nature. Uh, We are actually free from sin right now, but we don't live free from sin every day. I don't know. Have any of you gone like uh, a couple years without sinning? Kara's laughing a little too hard at that. I have not. I'm still working on like stringing a couple good hours together. Um, I usually can get about eight hours a day without sin when I'm sleeping. And so, listen, I'm free from sin. Jesus has paid the penalty. He's empowered me by the Holy Spirit. I am free from sin, but somehow still sin is part of my life from time to time. I think that sickness, we should look at sickness the same way. Listen, Jesus has purchased our healing. When we get to heaven, we'll be perfectly healed. Uh, But there's still sickness and illness in our life from time to time. The ultimate freedom from sin and sickness will be when we die and enter into heaven but we can still live in victory now. Will it be perfect victory? No, but we can still live in an abiding victory over sin and then I would also say sickness. So here's the big idea that I want to communicate. Divine healing is in the atonement of Christ. So some of you might be saying, well, what's the atonement? Well, that's a big word, uh, explain what atonement means. So this is my best uh, attempt at a definition. So. The work that Christ did in his life and death to earn our salvation. This is from Wayne Grudem. The work that Christ did in his life and death to earn our salvation. When we think about the atonement, I want you to think primarily of the cross, okay? And everything leading up to and surrounding the cross. The the scourging and the whipping and the beating, the torture, essentially torture that Jesus underwent, the crucifixion, the death. I want you to be thinking of that, okay? Have that picture in your mind. The, uh, this is Alistair McGrath, the second definition. The benefits of Christ gained for believers by his death and resurrection. And then the third one is my definition. Everything that Jesus accomplished in reconciling humanity to God through his obedient life and sacrificial death on the cross. So a couple things, if you wanna understand the atonement, you have to understand the concept of reconciliation. That it is, it is crucial to understand the Bible and to understand the gospel, you have to understand that mankind and God started off in union. Through Adam and Eve lived in union with God. Through sin, were disconnected from that union. They, they spiritually died. God said, if you eat this fruit, you're gonna die, right? But they ate the fruit. They didn't fall over dead immediately in their body, right? Spiritually, they died. A biblical way to think of life and death is connection and disconnection. This is something that Neil Anderson uh, has explained in Victory of the Darkness and Bondage Breaker. When we think of life and death, we usually think of like uh, being awake or being annihilated. Like when when you're alive, you're aware, you have an awareness, you're awake, and then when you die, we think of annihilation like you can't think, you can't speak, you can't move. That's how we think of death. A biblical way to think of life and death is connection. Life is connection. I'm connected. Death is disconnection. Okay, So when Adam and Eve died spiritually, they were no longer united with God. In fact, they became enemies of God. And that was passed down through our nature through all generations so that you and I were born already enemies of God. Born in sin. We are all born of a sinful nature, which means that we have the propensity and the proclivity to make sinful decisions. So we are guilty because of Adam and Eve, we are also guilty because of our own sinful behaviors. So we're extra guilty. Enemies of God, while we were God's enemies, Jesus died for us to redeem us. So the atonement is to reconcile or to repair that union that was destroyed through Adam and Eve's sin as well as our sin. And uh, the atonement is what brings us together, okay? It's, It's the reconciliation. In fact, the word atonement was, from what I can, could find out, was a word that was coined by William Tyndale when he was translating the Bible into English. There was no word that really carried the, Latin, the meaning of the Latin word he was trying to translate. So the Latin word he was trying to translate, and I know I'm going to pronounce this incorrectly, is reconciliatio. That sounded Okay. Who, who knows if I'm wrong? I don't know. Reconciliatio is the Latin word that he was trying to translate. Sounds like reconciled. But he was like, I, there's, it's heavier than just reconcile. I need... So he had to make up a word. And the word he made up was at one We are at one with God. Well, if you just take the hyphens out of at one you get atonement. And listen, this is not a trick. This is not a pastoral trick. Atonement literally means at one man. Okay, it's an English word that an, an English-speaking guy made up, but it means to be at one with God. So, how, are, how, are, how is any human being at one with God? They're only at one with God because of Jesus' death. That's it. His substitutionary death where he took our penalty. That's the only way anyone's at one with God. You're not at one with God because you have good church attendance. You're not at one with God because you tithe. You're not at one with God because you read the Bible every day. Those are all great things. But the reason anyone ever has been ever at one with God is because of Jesus' reconciling death. And we just we refer to that as the atonement. Okay. Usually when we think of the atonement, we think of forgiveness of sin. Jesus died so that uh, he took the penalty of our sin and we could be forgiven. And that is 100% accurate. But I'm going to say that there's more to that. That it's not just forgiveness of sin, but it's also healing of our bodies that that is also one of the things that Jesus died for. And as confident as you are that Jesus has forgiven your sin, you should have confidence that he will minister to your bodies in divine healing. Okay. So that's atonement. Uh, Hopefully I was able to explain that well enough for you to wrap your head around it. Now, why do we believe that divine healing is in the atonement? Well, this is something that actually precedes the incarnation of Jesus. Uh, The prophet Isaiah, this is about 700 years before Jesus was born uh, of a virgin. Isaiah prophesied this about the Messiah. You might be familiar with Isaiah 53. We refer to this as the passage on the suffering servant. I spoke to a rabbi about two weeks ago who I suspected this, but he confirmed that they don't even touch Isaiah 53 in most synagogues. It's too, too many people start having questions about Jesus, so they don't even touch it. So this is what Isaiah prophesied about the the Messiah, the suffering servant, Jesus, 700 years before Jesus' incarnation. Surely our griefs he himself bore and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him. And by his scourging, we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. So again, this is 700 years before Jesus, but it is still about Jesus. So I want you to think about Jesus as we review this. People looked at Jesus and... He was a man acquainted with many sorrows. Okay? Jesus suffered. And unlike you and I, he suffered not because of decisions he made or not because of sin in his life. Uh, he suffered on our behalf. Sometimes, in fact, often, when you and I suffer, it's, it's the result of our own choices, right? Not always, but often. Jesus never suffered because of sin in his life. He, he suffered because of sin in our lives. So Jesus was not this uh, happy-go-lucky, always positive, optimistic guy. He suffered. Uh, he was misunderstood. He was slandered. Uh, they said that Jesus was, uh, well, he, he would eat with um, uh, sinners and tax collectors. They accused him of gluttony, uh, drunkenness. I mean, he was misunderstood. They ultimately attempted to kill, the, kill him multiple times and were successful. Even when they were successful, though, he voluntarily gave up his life. So he was a man acquainted with many sorrows. He was smitten. So that's a way of saying God smote him. We ourselves esteemed or viewed him as stricken by God and afflicted. Verse 5, if this isn't talking about the crucifixion, I don't know what is. He was pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities, The chastening or discipline or punishment for our well-being fell upon him. People would have looked at Jesus being crucified and they would have either pitied him or hated him. Because just the average person passing by seeing Jesus crucified, they would have had like this disdain, like, oh, look at this criminal. He deserves it. Which is a common response that people have today. We see people in prison or whatever and being disciplined or punished we think they deserve it right i'm sure people cross passed by jesus and said he deserves it look the guy on his left is a thief the guy on his right is a thief he's being crucified which is the worst punishment ever can get he deserved it but here's the thing he didn't deserve it why did he experience all this suffering suffering he was crushed for our iniquities that suffering, that chastening, was for our well-being, not his. He went through all of that for us, for our well-being. By his scourging, or most of you are probably familiar with the phrase, by his stripes, we are healed. So that's the whipping, referring specifically to that. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Each has turned to his own way, but the Lord has caused the iniquity of, uh, of us all to fall on him. So 700 years before Jesus was incarnated, Isaiah prophesies this this is talking about the suffering that Jesus is going to experience and it says that by his scourging or by his stripes we are healed now of course before Jesus you could understand this a couple different ways in fact many people just totally misunderstood this passage which is why many people did not understand Jesus to be the Messiah. But we have the benefit of the New Testament explaining this to us. So I want to go to Matthew chapter 8. Um, I love Matthew chapter 8. Before I read the passage here, I want to explain uh, a principle for understanding Matthew. Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew, is the most Jewish of all the Gospels. Okay, he's writing to a Jewish audience. He quotes the Old Testament more than any other Gospel writer. Pulls out all the prophecies and does all of this stuff. So it's written to a Jewish audience to be read through Jewish eyes. Um, Matthew does this little trick where when he, when he wants to make a theological point, he precedes it with stories. So an example of this uh, is when Jesus uh, fed 5,000. This is in Matthew chapter 15 and 16, which we're not going to read. I'm just giving you an example. Matthew 15, Jesus feeds 5,000. Right? He multiplies the bread. Right, I mean, Jesus, So Jesus has the ability to multiply bread. Okay? Bread has the ability to multiply meat. Jesus, thank you Sharon, (laughs) Jesus has the ability to multiply bread, they feed the 5,000, they're tired, they get in a boat, and Jesus says to his disciples, beware of the yeast or the leaven of the Pharisees, and they whisper, is he saying this because we forgot bread? Jesus doesn't care about you forgetting bread, he can make bread out of nothing, right, the point he's making is beware of their teaching. It's going to find its way into your life and it's going to infect everything you do. Beware of the legalism of the Pharisees because it's going to spread through you like yeast does through bread dough, right? So Matthew takes a story about bread and then uses it to, Ill- to draw this principle or this point about uh, uh, beware, being aware of the yeast of the Pharisees. Matthew chapter 8 is the same thing. Matthew chapter 8 starts out with Jesus healing a leper. If you go to Matthew chapter 8, verse 2, he's healing a leper. And then after he heals the leper, there's a second story where he heals a paralyzed man from a distance, long-distance healing. Okay, Continue into Matthew 8, starting in verse 14. This is where we'll pick up. When Jesus came into Peter's home, he saw Peter's mother-in-law lying sick in bed with a fever. He touched her hand and the fever left her. She got up and waited on him. When evening came, they brought to him many who were demon-possessed, and he cast out the spirits of the word and healed all who were ill. This was to fulfill what was spoken through Isaiah the prophet. He himself took our infirmities and carried away our diseases. So a couple observations about this passage. First, Jesus heals Peter's mother-in-law. Many scholars believe that this is why Peter denied knowing Jesus. As a mother-in-law joke, okay? No, no, no scholars believe that, okay? That was a joke. Jesus heals Peter's mother-in-law. What does he heal her of? A fever. She's not, I mean, so far we're dealing with lepers and people who are paralyzed. This lady just has the sniffles. But Jesus heals her. So, listen, before you go thinking that, well, my sickness isn't that bad, I don't want to bother God with my cold, You can't bother him. Listen, he's not a telemarketer who has people on hold and can only handle one person at a time. He can deal with your cold. He can deal with your sore back just as well as he can deal with someone who's battling cancer. He can handle all of that, so you don't need to prioritize your illness under or over anyone else's, okay? But look what he does. He heals Peter's mother-in-law, and then verse 16, it just kind of uh, spiderwebs out. When evening came, they brought to him many who were demon-possessed. He cast out the spirits with a word, and he healed all who were ill. So he heals the the leper early in Matthew 8. Then he heals the paralyzed man from a distance in Matthew 8. Then he heals uh, Peter's mother-in-law in Matthew 8. And then let's just throw this blanket statement out there. He healed all the ill people. And then what does Matthew say? He did that. To fulfill what was spoken through Isaiah the prophet, he himself took our infirmities and carried away our diseases. So if you read that passage from Isaiah 53 that we just had up on the screen and you come to the conclusion that that's a, it's a metaphor for our spiritual healing and it's symbolic, no, Matthew says it's not symbolic of spiritual infirmities uh, or emotional infirmities. It's physical He fulfilled that prophecy through physical healing. This is not about healing broken hearts. This is about healing broken bodies. Now Jesus can heal broken hearts as well, but this passage is is about divine healing of the body. The fulfillment of Isaiah 53 is this passage. That's what Matthew says. Matthew writes this. I mean, he puts it together. This isn't me putting it together. Matthew puts it together. The fulfillment of the... Messianic prophecy in Isaiah 53 about our infirmities and our diseases being carried away is in this passage, and it's divine healing of the body. And it connects divine healing with Jesus' suffering. So divine healing is in the atonement. It's in the atoning work of Jesus. Uh, This is not a new idea. It's not something that I came up with. I want to show you a quote. From a man named A.B. Simpson. How many of you have heard of A.B. Simpson? Okay, I quote him often. Okay, A.B. Simpson was the founder of the Christian and Missionary Alliance. In his book, The Fourfold Gospel, talking about Jesus, our healer, he says this. Divine healing is part of the redemption, should say redemptive, redemptive work of Jesus Christ. It is one of the things that he came to bring. Its foundation stone is the cross of Calvary. By his stripes we are healed. That is the redemptive work of Christ. You have a right to it. Beloved, for his body bore all the liability of your body on the cross. Take it and love him better because it came from his stripes. What he was dealing with, what he was confronting with uh, when he wrote this, was vast misunderstandings of divine healing in the culture at the time. This is he would have said this in late 1800s, early 1900s. When people, this is right when faith healers were starting to become well-known. You know, kind of like the, I don't know, the people you see on TV that like, we'll pray for your healing and send you a bottle of water from the Jordan River for 1999, you know, like, in the, it's like an exchange, a financial exchange. Okay, of course, they didn't have TV back then, but the kind of charlatans and fake stuff, he was confronting that. If you're familiar with uh, something called Christian Science, uh, this is something that was uh, put together by a woman named Mary Baker Eddy. Uh, Christian Science is neither Christian nor science, okay? It's basically a denial of reality. Um, Christian Science is kind of the idea, oh, you're sick, the sickness is not real. Know the truth, they, and they actually use this phrase, know the truth, the sickness is not real. So instead of healing, it's denial. The whole thing is built on denial. So you have these faith healers who are taking advantage of people and manipulating people's emotions and working up hype and all, all this stuff. Then you have like Mary Baker Eddy in Christian Science and denying all of these things. And then, now you have, so now you have A.B. Simpson who's saying, faith doesn't heal, Christ heals. Jesus heals. Healing comes from God. It doesn't come from denial. It's not even from faith. You access it through faith, but faith is not its source. The source of healing is Jesus. So we call that divine healing. Now, maybe some of you, this won't matter, but we don't use the term faith healing to describe what we believe in. We certainly don't believe in Christian science. We also don't close the door on healing, which some churches do. We believe in divine healing. Now, really quickly, why does this matter? Okay, here's why it matters. I just want to be transparent with you. Not every church believes this, okay? There are very good churches that still don't believe this. Uh, Just because they don't believe this doesn't make them a bad church. Nobody's perfect. Okay, not every church believes this, but our church does believe it. So you may have some very good, faithful, Jesus-like Christian friends that disagree with us on this point, And you can gently try to convince them if you would like. This should not prevent you from loving them and having fellowship with them. But uh, we believe this. Uh, our denomination believes it. I, sorry for you, both your pastors believe it. All of your elders believe it. If you're a member, you've said you believe it. So this is the direction our church goes on this topic. We believe that divine healing is in the atoning, redemptive work of Jesus, but not every church does believe that. Uh, Here are some of the other ramifications. If we believe it, it means that we can have confidence when we pray for healing. The same way that I can confidently assert to a Christian, your sins are forgiven, I should be able to say, and your body will be healed. We are gonna pray, with confidence that your body will be healed, okay? What we don't want to do is make blanket statements that that are always or never statements, okay? The Bible, there are too many stories in the Bible uh, for us to make blanket statements about healing. What we should do, to, to say that God always heals, no, he doesn't always heal. You, you don't even need modern contemporary testimonies to tell us that. The, he doesn't always heal in the Bible. We, I mean, I think of like Paul's thorn in the flesh, Job, and, other, and, and everyone that died, <laughs> right? He doesn't always heal. But also, we shouldn't say he never heals, right? These blanket statements don't help. What, what would be better is if we established norms and exceptions. Many Christians operate with the idea that sickness is the norm, but healing is the exception. When I read the Gospels and Acts, that is not the conclusion I come to. The conclusion I come to is health and healing is the norm, sickness is the exception. Does that make sense? It changes your expectations, it changes your faith when you start to identify well, what's the norm? I mean, all through the Gospels, all through the book of Acts, we have a command in James 5 to pray for the sick. The norm should be that we are praying for the sick and seeing some result. There are exceptions to that because God can do whatever he wants, right? And there are different causes for illness, and some are biological, and some are emotional, and some are spiritual. Um, But all I'm asking you to do is shift your norm and your expectation. We're not going to make a blanket statement about always or never, we're just going to say, listen, we think the norm is that God moves in divine healing because healing is in his nature. We read in Exodus 15, I am the Lord, your healer. That's his nature. He, he, when Jesus was on earth, he healed. He didn't spread sickness, right? Uh, what, did he, what did the church do, the early church? Healed. What did he tell the elders to do in James 5? Pray for healing. Like, That seems to be the trajectory he sets the church on, is healing. And then we carve out a little niche for the exceptions. There are exceptions. Sometimes he doesn't, but those are not the norm. Healing is the norm. Uh, Illness is the exception. So that's one of the ramifications. This is why this matters. I want to restate what I said earlier. This confidence, this atonement, divine healing being in the atonement, this applies to Christians. This is not applied to non-Christians. If you are not in Christ, then the atonement is not applied to you. You you do not have his blood over you. He has not uh, applied healing to you until you are in Christ. So if I can go back to my Sam's Club story, if you're a Christian, you can take anything off the shelf. You're, You're in, you're a member of God's family. If you're not a Christian, you don't have access to that. You don't have forgiveness of sin. You don't have healing of the body. Uh, but you might, from time to time, get a free sample. You, you know, God can do whatever he wants, and there's people, in, I mean, the, the just in Matthew 8, the centurion servant who was long-distance that got healed, who was paralyzed, there's no reason for us to believe that man was a believer, a Christian. So That just further indicates to me healing is because of God's nature. He just, he can't help himself. He loves to heal. But if I was a non-believer or if I was praying with a non-believer, I would not assure them that this has been purchased for you. This is your right. This is your inheritance. I would just say, God is good and he can do whatever he wants. So let's pray and see what happens. Does that make sense? How we, okay, another way to think of it is this. Somehow my wife arranged it so that our house is the central house on the block where all the kids come to play. (sighs) I barely want my kids playing in my house, let alone all the neighborhood kids. But a couple days ago, we had multiple kids from the neighborhood plus my kids in the house. Listen, when we're in my house, my kids, they can open the fridge, they can get a drink, they can get a snack. They don't have to ask. They have free reign to do that. But the neighborhood kids gotta ask. They cannot open the fridge indiscriminately, right? Okay. <laughs> when you're God's kids, you have access to things that people who are not God's kids don't have access to. Do you, does that make sense? Healing is one of those things. Forgiveness is one of those things. Okay, one more ramification for why this view of healing matters to us. Not only is it our, our inheritance from Jesus... It's also like it's theologically it's our inheritance. By that I mean our church belongs to a network of churches that has believed this since its inception, since the beginning. Um, I want to show you. My wife and I have the nerdiest vacations. I love when I'm on vacation to visit like the graves of dead theologians and and like oh this is where someone preached under an oak tree or just you know like. Uh, Jonathan Edwards bought his first Bible, or you know, some ridiculous thing. So this summer, I got a chance to visit this home. This is called the well. Actually, it's just someone's house now. So I'm just some creepy guy standing outside taking pictures. I did it very quickly and got out of there. But originally, this was called the Baraka Healing Home located in Nyack, New York, where the same guy I quoted earlier, A.B. Simpson, uh, established a healing home where people who were ill would come and stay and receive prayer for divine healing. His approach to healing was very unique in that he believed that God could use medical means as well as spiritual means. And so while people were staying in this house, they may receive visits from physicians, but they would also get extended prayer, not Lord, heal this person, and then check out. But hours, people would sit with them for hours and pray. They would have extended times of worship in this house. And mind you, this is before Spotify and playlists. So extended worship here meant someone singing or playing a piano in the downstairs, and you would hear it through the house. Very different than what we would do. They would soak in God's presence, and they would receive prayer, and they would be in an atmosphere of worship, And many people were healed. This is in Nyack, New York. It's still there, but like I said, it's someone's house now. What I wouldn't give to live in that house. Those people are 250 years old. This, I forget the name of the building, but this was a guest house run by a woman who was friends with A.B. Simpson. Her name was Carrie Judd Montgomery. This is in Oakland, California. Kendra and I visited this about two years ago. We even got to stay there. Um, this, she did the same thing she hosted missionaries and she had healing rooms where people would just this was not new age or anything like this she didn't shock them with batteries or anything like that um, they would just ex- receive extended times of prayer and worship asking for Jesus to heal their bodies there are houses and homes like this all over the world this one still operates There are houses and homes like this all over the world that were started by people in the Christian Missionary Alliance who believe that God still healed the body. And this is part of our inheritance, not just as Christians, but as people that are part of the Christian Missionary Alliance. This is what I want to, this is how I want to suggest that we respond this morning. A couple things. First, just two or three weeks ago, we had an equipping session on how to pray for divine healing. That equipping session was much more practical and pragmatic. It was, about, it was actually about how to pray for divine healing. So ask permission before laying hands on a person. Here's how you pray. Uh, maybe you should get the elders and anoint with oil. Here's how we, It was very practical. It was a how-to. Today is a little more of a why. Why do we believe in this? If you weren't at that equipping session, the recordings for that are available in our church's Facebook group. It's only two or three weeks ago. If you would like to know how to pray for healing, just scroll back and find those. It's two different videos. Each one is about 45 minutes long. Check those out. I know that from that night, I have heard of four different people that experienced some sort of improvement in their bodies. just from that one night, and that's just what I've heard of, so I don't know what else happened, but um, that was a good night for our church. A lot of people were equipped to know how to pray for uh, healing, so if you want to know how to do this, find those videos and watch them. Um, Also, this morning we're going to take communion. Uh, Traditionally, we have prayed for people to be healed while we take communion. Uh, Why do we do that? doesn't say in the Bible when you take communion, pray for healing. The reason we do it is if divine healing is in the atonement and communion is a very direct and clear reminder of the atonement, then this is a good time for us to pray for healing. So I want to ask the worship team to come up. And I would like to ask uh, Glenn Miller. Glenn is one of our elders to come up. We're going to prepare for communion. If you could put the communion slides up. We're going to do as we do most months and read together what we call our communion declaration. This is very closely uh, paraphrased from 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Um, We're going to read this together and then we're going to observe communion together. So let's read this as one. We believe that the Lord Jesus on the night he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. We believe that in the same way, after supper, he took the cup and said, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. We declare that whenever we eat this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. With reverence and solemnity, we declare that whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. We advise that everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink from the cup. For those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ eat and drink judgment on themselves. So... The way that we observe communion at True Vine is we have bread that has been prepared by a deacon up here. Uh, you will, when you're prepared, come up the front, take a piece of bread, dip it in the cup. The bread represents Jesus' body that was broken for us. The cup represents Jesus' blood that was shed for us. We Please don't drink from the cup. Dip the bread in the cup. Uh, when you come up, You are welcome to make some space here at the altar. If you'd like to stand or kneel and pray, you're welcome to do that. You can also go back to your seats. I wanna come up the middle aisle and back through the outer aisles. Also, if you would like prayer for healing in your body, Glenn is an elder, I'm an elder, James 5 tells us that if anyone is sick, call the elders of the church, have them anoint you with oil, and the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. So if that's something that you would like to do as well, Glenn will stay on that side, I'll stay on this side, and we'll be happy to pray with you. Would you mind standing with me? I'm going to pray over our elements, and then you can come up whenever you are prepared. Jesus, you shared this meal with your disciples, and in the same way, this is a meal that is provided for your disciples today. Lord, I ask that as we draw near to you, that you would use communion, that you would use the anointing uh, of the sick for healing as ways that we can experience you, God. These tangible uh, ways to know your presence and to know your goodness and to learn about your character and your nature, God. So we bless these elements, we bless the bread, we bless the cup, and we ask that you would consecrate them and use them for your glory. We ask that in the name of Jesus. Amen. As I shared, this is a meal that Jesus provided for his disciples. If you're a disciple of Jesus, you're welcome to come up. If you're not a disciple of Jesus, it would be good for you to hang back and uh, stay in your seat today. Okay, come when you're prepared.